Welcome to the Living Jewishly Podcast. I'm Dr. Elliot Malamud. And I'm Rabbi Yossi Saperman. And I'm Rabbi Bluth. We talk about Judaism, and we talk about living, and we talk about everything in between. And what it means to be Jewish and human in today's world. Judaism is not nearly as boring as I thought it was. We're not selling you on Judaism. We're not selling you on living. We're just trying to get you inside of our brains, the way we think about stuff. And the way we feel about stuff. And we'll try to be as real as possible. By getting you into our Jewish brain, you'll argue a lot, you'll disagree, you'll love, you'll eat, you'll have a really good time, you'll learn a lot of things, and you know what? You might actually find that all those 3,000 years have been worth it. And maybe we'll even come out being better people for it. One of the oddest statements in the entire corpus of Jewish law has to do with drinking on the holiday of Purim. The Talmud states that according to the 4th century sage, simply named Rava, one is obligated to drink on Purim until one can no longer distinguish between the phrase, blessed is Mordechai and cursed is Haman. In Aramaic, for those who are keeping score, the phrase is mechaiv inish lebesume bepuria ad delo yada ben arur haman lebaruch Mordechai. And that phrase, ad delo yada, might mean up until the point of non-discernment and not a step further. So there is some margin to say that you shouldn't cross the line in terms of confusing Haman with Mordechai. But many people believe that Rava was encouraging one to actually cross that line and confuse the two. Hence do the paradigms of good and evil get blended together in this haze of alcoholic frenzy until they come out on the other side as nearly indistinguishable. What's the meaning of such a teaching? Does this really reflect a Jewish ethos? And why is there such an emphasis on drinking on Purim? Is it because this sage believed that a certain level of alcoholic imbibing would reframe our moral and emotional sensibilities in a good way? As though once a year we all need this kind of reboot? In modernity, we're all used to many other kinds of substances besides alcohol, and it raises the possibility that perhaps the time has come for Purim to open unto the world of psychedelics, which can perhaps teach you to quote the title of Michael Pollan's remarkable book, how to change your mind. I'm Elliot Malamud, and this is a special Living Jewishly podcast on Purim, drinking, and psychedelics. I'm joined here by my Living Jewishly colleague, Rabbi Rachel Rosenbluth, and also by Rabbi Ami Silver, who is a rabbi and psychotherapist based in Jerusalem. He leads groups in the embodied, studied, and practice of Jewish spiritual traditions. Ami is the director of emergent education for Shefa, an organization that provides Jewish psychedelic support and is involved in clinical trials for psychedelic-assisted therapy in Israel. He also maintains a private therapy practice. We all explore together how the use of substances to enhance spiritual experience might be of value and where they could be problematic. Okay, so it's a, it's a well-known notion that Purim is associated with drinking, drinking heavily, drinking to the point of not confusion and non-clarity. In fact, there's a well-known idea on Purim that you should drink until you can no longer distinguish between Mordechai, the ostensible hero of the story, and Haman, the ostensible villain. That is an oddity that we need to sort through. And I wanted to begin with Ami and ask you, this idea that we, we can't, we should drink till we can no longer distinguish between Mordechai and Haman, does that for you constitute the ultimate in clarity, or is that really the epitome of moral confusion? <laughs> what a great question, Elliot. I'll start by saying that the teaching, the Talmudic teaching that this idea derives from, the languages that a person should be intoxicated, ad delo yada, right, until they do not know. 
And one thing I want to start with is we read those words, we hear those words, and we think it means you don't know the difference. And just a kind of beginning paradigm shift in how we think about this is the lo yada, to the point of lo yada, of not knowing. Not knowing is itself a state of awareness. Not knowing isn't just you don't know what's what, but not knowing is actually a state of consciousness that this Talmudic teaching is, in a sense, pointing us toward. That the, the intoxication should bring one to the point of what we might call not knowing. And from that vantage point, I, I, I want to kind of address the question a little more, more head on. Let me just jump in for a second. Yeah, I just to ask you, what, what, what do you, what do you, what constitutes the spiritual virtue to you of not knowing? What, what's, what does that mean? Right. So, so, so this is the perfect segue because the teaching actually is not, I don't know the difference between Haman and Mordechai. The teaching is, I don't know the distinction between blessing Mordechai, blessing, as you said, the hero, and cursing Haman, cursing the villain. The, the distinctions that we hold of who I bless, what I bless, and what I curse, that really has to do with the, the kind of value lens and judgment that I hold, that I basically impose on my life and on the world around me. The Perm story is teaching us that each and every step that Haman took, that the villain took to accuse and attack the Jewish people was itself a step toward their salvation and blessing. So I think when we get into that more nuanced level of what am I unknowing on this day? I'm unknowing those kind of rigid frames of mind that I bring to not only the small things in my life, maybe the people in my life, but to the big things in my life. And and when you're asking what the spiritual value of that is, you know, I, I feel like I can only touch it in broad strokes for now, and maybe we'll kind of get into it more as as the conversation develops. But who's the whose perspective is the true perspective on reality? It's not mine. And it's definitely not mine based on the things that I'm attracted to or averse to, toward, right? That's based on you know, all the different influences on my life, as well as my own Mishagas, right? To get to the place of unknowing or of not knowing, so the spiritual virtue there on, on a very fundamental level is for me to touch a certain state of perception of experience that isn't governed by all of those preconceived notions that I've become accustomed to, and that while they allow for a certain way of me relating to the world around me, they actually block me from relating to the world around me in a more direct, open, and perhaps even true way. So there's there's a sense of, of bringing me to a different kind of truth, potentially. I find that super interesting because you shifted the question away from a question of morality. It's not about what is good and what is evil, but how do we relinquish our own it's like a way, it's like how do we release the way that we relate to things or 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 view things? And as you were speaking there, I kept hearing the emphasis on this knowing, right? It's like un- entering a state of unknowing. You know, so much of our tradition, for various reasons of, you know, oppression and rebuilding and yada, yada, have our, our tradition is very heady, right? Knowledge is such a high virtue for us. We are a people in our heads, not always, not everyone, but, you know, definitely the yeshiva world is is a heady tradition. And something about what you're saying and the invitation of Purim to me kind of brings us, it's not about blurring morality. It's not about saying what we, 
you know, the, this horrible behavior is suddenly okay. But it's saying, what happens if we had a small moment in our year where we actually just sort of released ourselves from, from knowing, from, from being caught in our heads and analyzing the world through knowledge and stepped a little bit into and, and I think, for, you know, maybe for the Jewish people, it requires a day like Purim, a day of intoxication to kind of break us from our shackles of the mind for a second, but to get into the body, you know, and, and then feasting and, and drinking or sleeping or partying or that ecstasy that comes with the community pieces of Purim. It's suddenly a different, yeah, there's something there. It's like a shift from, from, from the mind to sort of dropping in in a different way. It's interesting, Ami. I want to go back to what you said and also incorporate something that Booth just said in this theistic morality. So let me, let me play the skeptical listener for a moment. And I, I'm actually ambivalent in my own mind about this question. So I'm going to be kind of open about it. Part of me is very, very drawn to what you're saying, both because I, I think like a postmodern and also because it seems true to me to say that who am I? like to be the arbiter of truth. I'm just one perspective. I put my lens on it, etc. It's all true. At the same time, I'm really deeply gripped by the notion that at some point in this world, you have to sit yourself, situate yourself as a person who says, this just seems wrong to me. This just seems right to me, right? Especially in situations of, let's say, radical evil, people who impose great pain on each other, and so on. My question to you is like, how do we navigate this, right? Is it possible for human beings to maintain the perspective that you're talking about and still live in a world of right and wrong of like having actual moral, ethical, you know, discernments and standards? So number one, I don't know. I'm <laughs> not just saying that to be cute, but I've never, I've never seen it. Let's put it that way. I'll also say like the first thing that comes to mind is this is one day out of the year. In a sense, it is a departure from our norms. And, and I, I, I want to also respond to you that's in a way also responding to my first, the first thing I said, because it's not so simple that this is not about morality. I, I, I think the moral complications are, are also built into Purim in a lot of ways. I'll give you a, a funny example, right? We started off as our starting point. Person should be intoxicated until they don't know the difference between bless. I always have to like check myself when I when I quote this so I don't misquote it. Bless Mordechai, curse Amon, not to get those two confused. It's not for him yet. But there's actually a Talmudic teaching that that this teaching is related to, which is the Jerusalem Talmud says we actually need to be saying on the day of Purim, bless Mordechai, curse Haman, curse Zeresh, bless Esther, curse all the you know evildoers, bless all the righteous ones, and we sing this song, Shoshanah Yaakov, the song we sing at the end of the and traditionally at the end of the Megillah reading. It says all these words. So on the one hand, it's a day where we're actually meant to be naming blessing and cur- who who gets blessed and who gets cursed. You know, the good guys and the bad guys. It's a day where there's a lot of clarity and a lot of energy focused on that. I mean, think about our traditions. We stamp out the memory of Haman. We want to drown out the memory of Malik, of that nation that represents this kind of primordial evil. So we really are going to fight evil on this day. And yet at the same time, we're undoing part of our rigid perspectives. It's it's quite confusing. It's quite confusing. And and truth be told, we do come out of Purim into the rest of the year, where all of the normative boundaries are not only upheld, but are of prime importance. So I, I, I want to want to suggest that there may be another way to to view this and the question you're asking in terms of seeing how Purim is a day of the rest of the year. That in a sense, it's bringing us into a certain realm, let's just call it, 
a certain realm where the rules are different, where the distinctions that we're used to upholding have changed. And yet, I believe it's meant to catalyze us back into the non-intoxicated world, where good and evil, right and wrong are things that we care deeply about and that we are committed to um, bringing clarity to. And I'll bring one more one more piece here from the rabbinic teachings, which is that there's a wild Talmudic teaching that in some way, the events of Purim were the truest reception of the Torah, that, that somehow Mount Sinai wasn't enough, and, and the events of Purim that happened centuries later became the foundation for Torah in the way that, that the people receive it. And, and part of what this says to me speaks to, to some of this dynamic. What I'm getting on Purim is some kind of direct and wild state of perhaps revelation, of perhaps intensity, like akin to Mount Sinai. When I come out of Purim, that experience can then infuse, why am I doing the things that I'm doing? For what are all of these norms? For what is all of this commitment to bringing you know, moral, ethical clarity, care to the world around me? In a sense, Purim is the place to return to that almost like atomic energy that that the rest of Torah and in all of its actual distinctions sort of emerge from and are are sustained by. But when we're not in touch with that atomic energy, that sort of primordial revelation behind all of it that's beyond the distinctions and that includes all sides of all boundaries, so then our boundaries become stale and our commitments become old and they lose the taste of that that purpose, right? And that kind of source of life that that we're really uh, meant to be devoting ourselves to. Yeah, I like that a lot because it suggests that in every life, every year, you need at least 24 hours to step out, to sort of push the boundary, to take it right to the edge. The better to re-clarify for yourself what those other, you know, uh, 300 plus days are about. And, and it's, right. it's almost becomes... From that vantage point, it almost becomes imperative to do this, right? Like almost non-negotiable. Well, to add there, you know, I think there the question is sort of rooted in um, a fear, and I think it's a really reasonable fear in this day and age of bypassing. Like, is Purim just this opportunity to bypass moral discernment, to bypass what matters? Da 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 da. It's like a free pass. And I mean, what you're what you're honing in on is that it's not about bypassing at all. It's actually about something deep and something motivating. And, you know, there's this line, it doesn't matter how you sell, like, who cares what you do on Purim? Who cares how epic your Purim is? What really matters is the day after Purim. Like, how do you integrate? How do you show up? How do you take from that and build a life that is sort of inspired, but is in service of, you know, building a good world of of, of the world towards the good, away from evil, etc. So... And we're meant yeah. to remember Purim. We're meant to remember Purim, right? That's the Megillah says, like, the memory of these days will never cease. And there is, Purim is, is both a departure and also that it's something we're meant to be drawing into, into the rest of our, our lives. What strikes me also is the seriousness of the project. I, I think that's crucial. See, I mean, when people think about getting drunk on Purim, taking this kind of moral holiday, they think of it as a game. It's fun. We're playing. It's not serious. It's not real, but. If you took the moral holiday seriously, I'm thinking here specifically where people get really rigid about certain conflicts that they're quote unquote clear about in their mind, Palestinian, Israeli, any other kind of conflict where people long ago made up their minds. And so if you say, you know, take a moral holiday from the way you usually think, 
and push your beliefs and push your boundaries. So usually they'll say, oh, okay, fine, I'll, I'll play at it. And it's, it's actually weird when you, you know, streets of Jerusalem, you see people dressing up in like kafias and stuff like that. And there's all this like weird stuff going on where, oh, we're going to play at this now. But like at the stroke of midnight, I'm going right back to the way I thought before. Now, what I like about what you both said is that, no, 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 this isn't just, you're not just playing at. You really have to rethink and rethink and push, push, push how you're looking at your perspectives so that you're actually a little bit different the it's, day after. It's transformative. Right. It's not just a game. It's like we really have to, we, we have to be something new, you know. And I think about this like Yom Kippur, you know, Yom Kippurim, you know, like it, it isn't that, that the line between this, this tremendous gravitas of Yom Kippur and the seeming playfulness of Purim are identical. And they both take you beyond beyond yourself, beyond what you're, or at least beyond your your normative self definition. Right. So we're talking here about the the, the substances we use on pouring to achieve these states, right? And for many people that I've known in my life, drinking is the way a means of forgetting, right? It help you forget what you don't want to think about, and you're sort of numbing your pain. But it strikes me that psychedelics actually open you up to a lot of internal levels. So I'm wondering if you can maybe explain to the audience what you see as the difference, both experientially and maybe philosophically, the difference between taking psychedelics and getting drunk. I would love for you to answer this question. And before, I just want to point something out to kind of context contextualize for the listeners that when we say on Purim Chayv initially Basume, like one is required to get intoxicated or infragranced. There are many ways to do that. And so to distinguish between psychedelics and, and, you know, drinking alcohol is really important. But just to put it out there for the listeners that this basume can be done with alcohol, with psychedelics, with meditation, with napping. It's about a consciousness shift. So just to, to start us there. And, and now let's dive into the difference of the sort of, I think, common or the more common modes in this day and age. Okay, and and if if we're going to speak about kind of introductory remarks, I also just want to want to name very clearly: safety is of utmost importance here, and there is a lot of danger that can happen from alcohol, and there's a lot of danger that can happen from psychedelics, and and the whole context here is a safe environment, and and that's actually a little bit part of how I want to begin to answer here. I hear what you're saying that we we generally have the idea, you know, people drink to forget the pain to numb themselves. And and a lot of what we were hearing, especially in our day and age, is about the transformative and healing potentials in thin psychedelic experience. I, I want to start by questioning the assumption. I, you know, from my own perm experiences, have been part of and witnessed many instances when the drinking has brought out very deep emotion, you know, pain, joy, truth-telling, honesty, and bonding between people. And and I actually want to borrow some terminology from the world of, of psychedelics, which is set and setting, right? Set and setting is really referring to what is the kind of mindset or intentionality with which we're approaching this experience. That's the set. It's like, where am I internally? From what state am I approaching this? And the setting is is my environment that can have everything to do with the physical space I'm in, with who I'm with. And and ultimately, those pieces, whether we're talking about alcohol consumption or psychedelics, can go a long way in influencing the experience. 
So I, I kind of like Bluth what you said, which is that the ways to basume with whether that involves substances or no substances at all. I mean, the rabbis themselves call Torah wine. The rabbis themselves call to- Torah sam chayim, a drug of life. There's an awareness that there are so many things that can kind of alter our consciousness. When we get into, you know, I also want to address your question a little more. Who I want to directly. I am not coming in with any kind of like agenda or biases of what substances are that are going to give you the truest or best burn. I do think that every person reacts differently to different things. You know, dosage makes a big difference as well with, with both substances. Dosage will make a big difference. I mean, if somebody's in a, in a high dose psychedelic experience, they will likely be very much kind of in their own universe and not necessarily in, in kind of connection with, with others around them. Again, depending on the substance they're taking. But if we're talking classic psychedelics, that's kind of what it, what it will be like, which has its own potential for expanding their, their consciousness with potentially some kind of inner transformation that, that might, that might occur there. At the same time, Purim is a very communal holiday, right? It's a, it's a time of not only national salvation, but a time where the traditions and customs of the day are, di- are directed on an interpersonal level, right? We give tzedakah, we, we bring mishalach manot, we make suda with, with one another. There's pursume nisa, there's publicizing the, the miracle, and that's something that's done collectively. And drinking together and, you know, getting drunk with others has, generally speaking, again, don't want to kind of make blanket things, but generally speaking, possibility of more flow between people. That could happen in an intentional psychedelic experience as well. And I think it's really kind of like choose your own adventure. But also, I would, for me, what would be kind of primary there really has to do with set and setting, with is what is your intention? What are you looking to, to gain out of this? And given that, what are the best, not only supportive substances toward that goal, but also who do you want around you? What kind of environment is going to be supportive? safe and and nurturing for for the kind of experience that that feels needed that feels like the one that you're you're looking for i'll say one more thing which is just as you said that drinking can kind of make people forget or kind of distance themselves from their emotions if somebody's in a non-supportive environment on psychedelics they can also just be kind of out and about you know what we would call a bad trip they can just be in in total fear and terror for for hours on end. So it's not necessarily the substance that's going to to determine how in touch with their inner realities people are going to get. I wonder if you could speak to the relationship between that and religious experience, right? Why why and in what way do you think that certain states of consciousness that transcend our usual experience, how do you think that can enhance our practice of religion? Oh I'll, I'll start by saying that um you know what is what is what is our religion? Let's speak just from the Jewish perspective. What is the story of our religion? The story of our religion is that, well, and it just Judaism. What's the story of Judaism? The story is that a nation of slaves were brought to freedom and had collectively a direct encounter with the creator of all existence. Revelation, prophetic revelation that each person encountered directly. And that was the in a sense, birthplace of the entire mode of practice that we call Torah and Judaism. Here's my teachings, here are my mitzvot, here's the way for you to be in relationship with me. Religious practice gives frameworks and avenues 
to be in touch with that original relationship, with that ongoing relationship with, with, with God, with the creator. On some level, states of expanded consciousness, of deeper consciousness, of simply deeper experience of our lives have the potential to get us back in touch with that core relationship. With, I am not just here to follow certain guidelines or to carry on certain identities. There's something much more potent, real in an ultimate sense, and true about my existence that I have an opportunity to be in touch with at certain moments of my life. That doesn't only happen through taking different kinds of compounds or substances. That I, ideally, I think, I, I think Judaism is built for that to be happening when we pray, for that to be happening when we perform certain of our traditions and customs with, with intentionality. Even just living a life of, of faith and awareness of God is all meant to be nurturing that relationship, which at its core is a is a prophetic one. And when I say prophetic, I don't mean we know the future. I mean that there's direct contact, there's direct experience between creation and the creator, between each one of us and, and, and our source. But I think we all know that that doesn't happen so readily and easily to most of us. That doesn't happen for so many reasons. It's, it's hard to access for many. It's not what we're taught. It's not what our culture actually supports in many ways. So we might be fortunate to have a, a taste of something at different moments of our life. And I think there is potential in the intentional use of certain substances and compounds that, that really bring us into a different mode of being to get in touch with something that, that's not only at the closer to the core of our own existence, but, but is also the core from which our, our religion sprouts and, and, and is actually um, directed toward. In some ways, I feel like if religion is a practice towards consciousness shifting as well, if which I believe it it ought to be, and then I think you know second, you have to second, say it ought to be, but right, right, exactly, exactly. Yeah. In some ways, I feel like what psychedelics can offer because it's also a consciousness shift, and I think that can be many different things. Like Ami said, sort of depending on amount and setting and and stuff, but also different substances. Some of them, you know, can like kapow you outside of the universe, and some of them can drop you into what's in front of you with like deep, 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 like awareness and presence. So, you know, different things are going on, but both ways, it's almost like a, that can give you a taste of what we then can sort of remember that religion is, you know, we can, I don't want to say use religion because that doesn't feel like the right thing, but almost like sort of direct religion as a practice towards achieving this greater state of being, if that's openness, if that's mindfulness, if that's trust and not fear and stuff like that. So it's sort of like, reminds us what this religion practice thing can can be bringing into our into our lives and then religion becomes the practice right practice is something that you do you know you do over and over and i know we're talking about purim but my i've sort of hit passover for a second because in some ways i don't know if it was the noam Elimelech, there was someone who wrote about exodus from egypt or the passover seder being this taste of freedom right this like acid trip of freedom, essentially. And then we have the Omer and we walk towards Shavuot and we have this whole journey of integration of this thing that we tasted moving towards what would it be like to integrate and to actually turn that experience into something that is practiced daily, that is lived out through law, through through our life ways and stuff like that. So 
I think there's the journey, there's the taste, there's the glimpses of and just reminders of what is it that we are working towards in some sense. See, to me, this is actually one of the core conversations of contemporary religious life. Because what you're really saying is this goes far beyond a kind of niche conversation about psychedelics. And it gets to a much more fundamental question, which is essentially, do we really just play at religion, right? In other words, you are upping the stakes on You're saying, look, bottom line, yes, we do mitzvah, we do this, that, and the other, but isn't really the telos of all of this to achieve a kind of elevated state where you feel some sort of contact with the real capital R. But this is also an implicit critique of organized religion as it's currently constituted, right? And I think every single person, unless they're just high all the time, feels it. They feel like I'm going through the motions. They feel it's a, it's a, it's a rigidly regulated religion and, and people are obsessed with minutiae and what are we doing? And there's no meta anymore. I'm just locked inside of the mic. But this is very, very problematic if you think about it, right? In other words, if the religion as it's constituted cannot get you to that place, or it's too hard for the ordinary person to get to that place, which in a, sort of as a side point is really what Hasidut kind of tries to address as it comes into being. Part of what intrigues me about psychedelics is that it forms this implicit critique. It's saying to me, you can't get there really without me. You can try. You can put on your tefillin every day and you can do Shabbos and you can walk. You can talk the talk of Kabbalah, yada, yada, yada. But let's face it, brass tacks, you're still kind of locked in to your zone and you're not going to get out of it. So what, what, what is so interesting to me about the psychedelic conversation is that it, it presents itself as this kind of niche thing, but it's actually creeping up on you and saying, if you really want to do this and not like just pretend you're doing it and talk about it your whole life, this is where you need to be if you really want to get that contact. So I, I wonder what your thoughts are on that. It's a great conundrum you're bringing up. At times listening to you say it, I wanted to cry. At times I was nodding and smiling. Honestly, so here's one thing that comes to mind. In, in many cultures, psychedelics have been religious sacrament for millennia, right? So the the sort of conundrum you're bringing up is not a modern one, and it's not even right. a conundrum for, for many cultures. It's the way, and it has been since time immemorial. In the Jewish tradition, it hasn't been. Okay, and people, you know, a lot of people have tried to sort of speculate, finding different kinds of plants. He's, I'm not going to get into it. I, I personally have never found something convincing enough to me to, to really accept that it's been a central part of our of our spiritual tradition. I want to relate to what you said. You know, if you want to get there, you need psychedelics. I think that the Jewish, what do you, whatever you want to call it, community, tradition, faith, path, we've in many ways lost spiritual practitioners. How many of us have ever been taught or modeled how to engage in our religious practices as something that's truly bringing us to some kind of visceral experience. I don't even want to get so grandiose as saying to, you know, be in some enlightened state or make contact with God or, or you know, have visions. I don't even want to go there. How many of us have been even seen a model or given a language of of Jewish practice that, that touches the heart? that touches the body, that touches the soul, that makes us feel, oh my God, there's something here that is sacred, that is beyond me and that I'm connected with. I believe that even in lieu of having regular conversations about these things in many of our communities, 
I believe that most people have tasted that at different times, have experienced a glimmer of that in some way, shape, or form. And yet the absence of a developed conversation and a supportive and focused collective engagement with that kind of live current that runs through us as human beings, that to me is something I, I mourn. That to me is something I'm, I'm really saddened by. And I'd say for myself, I've devoted my religious life, you know, let's say the last two decades or so to, to that for myself and whatever kind of teaching I've, I've, I've done. That's been, been of primary importance to me. Do we need psychedelics to get there? I don't believe we need psychedelics to get there. They can be very supportive and, and they're not for everybody, but I want everybody to, to get there in the way that they can get there. Right. I want everybody to be able to, to find the way if they're, if they're somebody. Okay. For, I'm not evangelical, not even about, about, about Judaism. If there's somebody for whom some kind of relationship and taste of experience with the living divine is something that is, that calls them, that's important, that they're seeking, I want them to have doors to that. Whether that's through, practice, whether that's through all kinds of different practices, whether that's something that involves use of psychedelics. Yeah. I I I think we've been we've been banging against a lot of closed doors for a long time. And as you've said, Hasidic tradition and and it didn't come from nowhere. We've always had a current within normative Jewish tradition, normative Jewish practice of people who were devoted to an experiential path. And I do believe that together with everything else that's going on in the world over time and in our day where we're finding a lot more access to those teachings, to those approaches, to those practices. And and people are weaving all kinds of different things together. Right? People are, are are finding the ways. And I'm grateful that we have we have doors or at least an idea of where doors can can be be opened. Booth, I wanted to direct something directly off of what Ami just said to something you said before, which is Judaism is this head religion, right? Because I think one of the things that you're both saying that I'm picking up on is that in the long run, you're trying to achieve a kind of quote-unquote psychedelic perspective without actually needing the psychedelics. Because both of you have been talking about the need for transformation and it doesn't necessarily come through substances. But you talked about the fact that both of you have been alluding to the fact that we're not trained. That's what's coming through. Jews are not trained in some kind of regular, consistent, non-distracted way as a community to seek out and modulate spiritual experience. So, Bluth, I'd like you to address, in, in your view, in your life, in your experience, how do you think we can begin to move towards that kind of thing? In just simple, practical steps. If you're an ordinary person, you do your, you do your Jewish thing, whatever it is, but you yearn for more. You yearn for that taste, that glimmer that Avi was talking about. What sorts of things can a person begin to do daily, weekly, yearly, that can move them just gently, slowly towards a more genuine sort of encounter that they that they desire. The thing that helped me the most, you'll start there, was chanting, was nigunim, was song, was music. You know, I can answer this in a few different ways. I can give suggestions, you know, sort of prescribe suggestions. I think, though, before I do that, I would say, you know, and this is to speak in really secular language for a second, but what are the things that make you tick? <laughs> what are the things that put you into a flow state? Is that song? Is that community? Is that nature? Where do you touch awe? Start there. And, you know, part of me wants to say, implement that into your day, like make a daily practice about it. But even in my own life, if I said, okay, you know, nigunim are my way in, 
the minute that I started doing nigunim as a re- recurring practice, a regular practice, it kind of lost its magic. And listen, personalities are different. You know, some people do so well with with that kind of routine. And and I still think practice is important, but maybe the answer is like diversity of experience that how, you know, everyone knows that for themselves. Like what 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 brings you into calm, what brings you into joy and figuring out ways to ritualize that into one's life. And yes, Judaism offers like we have frameworks for prayer that is like three times a day. You know, you have let, let's like get in tune with the rhythms of the day, waking up with gratitude. You know, there's there's these different tools that we have in our tradition. But in terms of like how to bring that, like how do we bring that devotion in? You know, the thing that's actually popping into my mind right now is this question of with psychedelics, given that psychedelics are rooted in indigenous practice, indigenous spiritual practice for so long, I keep asking the question like, how can we and how do we, if we can appropriately draw from these other technologies out there in the world to help enliven our own? Is it appropriate to bring psychedelics into Purim? And again, for me, I think drawing from other traditions has actually been really enlivening. You know, Jewish meditation practice that was sort of rooted more in like mindfulness than it was in Judaism, although weaving in Judaism was was really awesome for me. Going to India was amazing because I got to taste what like a really intense devotional life looked like, you know, with with puja, with fire and flowers and offerings. I don't think I know how to say <laughs> to those listening right now where to start. I mean, maybe, or Elliot, maybe you guys. Well, what, what strikes me about what you're saying is that, you know, we, you know, they did a study of certain very polluted places years ago, and there was this great image that stuck with me, which is that there are certain countries in the world that if you put a dome over them, they would choke to death. And what that meant was that all of their air is imported, right? They can't live without the imported air. Now now we know that everything is kind of flowing throughout the whole world, so it's more complicated. But I'm thinking about that religiously. Like, can and, and essentially, what, what, we're, we're, we reach the point here where can Judaism stand on its own two legs? Or does it really require, and I don't think that's shameful, I think that's great, you know, does it really require infusions from these other traditions and places and thought streams to, because we're trying to combat routinization. That's what I hear both of you saying. We're trying to combat that and it's so hard to do. And, and also like combating exile in some ways. Like I think our tradition has changed over time through a history of oppression and gorgeous resilience and rebuilding. But we were once a temple people. We are no longer, you know, we now turn towards prayer for that. We have the calendar, you know, anyone who who is listening to the Living Jewishly podcast, like may know from my Sacred Time podcast that I'm, I think the thing that catches me Jewishly the most that I feel in my body and in my soul is the calendar, right? We have Shabbos weekly, we have holidays. These holidays are glimpses into different consciousness, contemplation, ecstatic experience, and whatever. So we do have these things. And and it's a place where I, like my heart softens and I want to like forgive Judaism and our community in a way, because we can be so hard. Oh, we're not embodied. You know, we're not all these kinds of things. It's, we have evolved and developed over many diasporas, over many, many, many years and chapters and stories. And in different moments, different things have been our place of connection. And that can be the intellect, but that, you know, I think to, there's different types of yoga, right? There's bhakti, there's devotional yoga, there's asana, there's postural practice, there's, there's like knowledge-based yoga. And in Judaism too, there's different, there's different pieces and different ways in. And so like maybe Shabbos is there. 
I don't know if there's one answer. I think that we're, we're trying to we're trying to get at the mechanics of routine. I think what you said about Nicodemus is very powerful. That there, there's this human tendency. It's not about being Jewish. There's a human tendency to just get jaded, take for granted, routineize the things you do, the people you're with, the people you love, and so and so. It's a mighty struggle each and every day, each moment to to push against. I want to relate to something, Elliot. You said. In, in when you formulated the question, which was something about an articulation of a psychedelic Judaism or psychedelically informed Judaism that may or may Psych- not involve psychedelic, pers- psychedelic perspective. Psychedelic perspective. Psychedelic. Yeah. I know for me, a game changer early on was discovering Judaism as a tradition that cared about consciousness. As a, and, and that was specifically discovering Hasidic tradition, Hasidic teachings. That for me was a a complete like mind shift that oh my god we have a highly developed rich textured multicolored multifaceted traditions and teachings that are all in some way or another thinking about the nature of reality the nature of the soul the the individual experience the the movement of of life itself and how we are in contact with that to me, that was a game changer. And to me, you know, when we talk about a, what we might want to call a psychedelic perspective, all of a sudden it's like, okay, well, my practice is not just about doing certain things at certain times and days and weeks of the year. The, the practice is, is about developing an awareness. And, and then every detail of, and, and every, every teaching and every, every moment can be another way to be developing that awareness. And when we're, when we're approaching it through that lens, so, so then, yeah, there are so many different avenues there. And, and Bluth, kind of to relate to what you're talking about, the routinization, for me, one of the basic teachings of, of Hasidut is to really fight against routine. Right? That's what you talked about Passover. The, the Baal Shem Tov has a foundational teaching that Yitzhak Mitzrayim, the exodus from Egypt, the release from our constraints, happens to every person in every moment of every day. We are constantly offered an opportunity to exit to eggs to ha- find an exodus and a free- freedom from the shackles of of a moment ago of yesterday and and so one one thing i just kind of want to put on the table is we do have teachings that can guide us in terms of how we can transform the way we relate to not only jewish practice but how we live in, in our lives and what it means to have a relationship with uh, the living god or living living divine we do have teachings that are that are here to flesh out possibilities for that and to come back to Purim for mm. one second, and Elliot, I know you're asking the questions here, but I will ask quick, just a quick question of just like coming back, like what, what is, we're coming up to Purim, like how do we do it? What, what, what is the gift of Purim for us this year? How do we walk into Purim? You know, let alone all the other days of the year and developing blah, 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 like Purim, you know? I mean, I'm a literature student, so I'm always struck by genre. And one of the things that's really interesting to me in the Gilad Esther is the almost not even thin line, the erased line between comedy, tragedy, satire, farce, reality, right? And that's really how I see life, you know? So for me, I feel it's like read the book and open yourself up to the idea that nothing is really set, slotted, regimented, that 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 the thing that is tragic is funny, the thing that is funny is serious, and that I, I think it's about an openness to seeing life in generically genre-expanded ways. And I think the story is deliberately structured that way. I think it's pushing us to rethink how we think 
and rethink how we assess and examine and slot and codify and define and label and designate, the better to open up ourselves to what is really out there as opposed to what we think is out there. So that's the way I think about it. Blutha, I don't know that I can answer in a way that is going to be relevant to to others. I feel Purim, for me at least, Purim is a very is a highly personal walk, walk walking into the personal holy of holies. In some level, I just say what's with me right now is you know wanting to be with my beating heart and wanting to be with that which makes my heart beat and pulse, which is not me, and which is not the things that I'm reacting to day by day, but is something a lot more core that's causing my heart to pulse and your heart to pulse and your heart to pulse and and to be able to be in in line with that that's that's Amazing. that's the prayer that comes up for me here and and i think for me the purim is like the or bimba simcha like the simcha the joy Sim. in but in in all of what you guys are saying in that sort of flipping and toning and tuning in and all of that so i want to thank you both for being here i think there's a i think there's a good part two pesach conversation I think. Uh, <laughs> well, let's have a part uh, to Shushan part part and then I want to wish all our listeners happy Purim, and I want to emphasize something Ami said, whatever you're going to do, whether you're drinking, whether you're doing substances of any kind, do them safely, do them carefully, do them with people you love, and do them in a supportive environment, and have a really happy Purim. And thanks, everybody. Feeling some kind of spiritual ascent without drugs is easier said than done. As Roger Hodgson reminds us in the gorgeous 1977 title track, Even in the Quietest Moments, well, there's a lot of me got to go under before I get high. Can Judaism really offer people the spiritual liftoff they seek? Or is the risk of dull routinization ever-present and almost impossible to shake? If religion is ultimately a quest for God, as opposed to simply a set of rituals, then should Jews be looking outside of the box? and possibly to psychedelics, to enhance their ability to access peak experiences. But if we need drugs for contact with the real, then what does that tell us about the relevance of organized religion, beyond just providing some comforting structure and social bonds? Ami Silver and Rachel Rosenbluth both argue for a psychedelic religion, so to speak, without the need for psychedelics, a promising formula that still leaves one wondering if such highs are available at your garden-variety Shabbat morning service, or the kosher aisle in the supermarket. Time will tell if psychedelics can truly make its way into the Jewish mainstream, or remain outside and above the fray to be sought out by initiates, but spurned by the ordinary Jew. I'm Elia Malamut. Thank you for listening and joining us on this journey. To find more of our podcasts, just subscribe to Living Jewishly at www.livingjewishly.org, where you can find details of our amazing new course on Judaism in the School of Living Jewishly. And check us out on Facebook and Instagram. And if you are drinking or taking other substances this Purim, stay safe and make sure someone is there to be aware of you if you decide to take a little trip, even one less than eight miles high. Take good care of yourselves. Thanks for listening to the Living Jewishly podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. It helps more people like you find our show so that we can continue to grow the Living Jewishly community together. You can find us at livingjewishly.org and on YouTube and Instagram. Living Jewishly is living well with everyone.